This is the Future of the Future show. I am your host, Mateo Berbejillo. Erica Grant, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Very good. So, Erica, we're going to talk about quantum computing, the real-life applications of quantum computing, what's next, um, and a lot of interesting facts. But I would like to start with your story. How did okay. you get into quantum computing? Okay, so it's kind of a long, rambling path, quite honestly. So I'll try to give you the short version. Um, when I was in high school... I was actually going to go into music. That's what I applied to all my colleges for. And then I had an AP physics teacher that was like, you should major in physics. It's like, okay, never really had a teacher tell me that I should major in the class that I was in. Um, at first I was like, no. And then I realized I was doing physics problems for fun. It's like, okay, maybe I should just try this out. I never saw myself as an academic. I kind of thought to be a physicist, you had to be like Einstein or somebody like that at the time. Um, turns out, no, you don't have to be like crazy smart. You can be sort of smart and still do really well. So I, uh, went into college at Virginia Tech for physics, did research in nanoscience and in quantum computing, decided I wanted to go into quantum computing after doing some internships and, uh, got into a really amazing grad school program that's at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the University of Tennessee. And I got to work with some amazing top scientists in quantum computing and uh, really get integrated with the field. And I just, I fell in love with it, really. So um, that's how I got into it. And um, it, it was an interesting path, but I'm really glad I ended up there. Nice. So we could say it was all in part thanks to that professor that saw something in you and said, hey, you really should, you know, get into physics. Yeah, I know. And it's it's crazy because I, I don't think I realized that I could do it until someone was like, hey, you could do this. Okay. Yeah, let's try it. Um, and I don't really, I still don't really see myself as an academic, but I see myself now as somebody who's capable of doing research, which is um, empowering, definitely. Very good. Do you still play music? Um, great question. No, I definitely fell out of it. I so I did a lot of competitive vocal stuff whenever I was in high school, and then when I went to college, I kind of just like went into my studies and did some other fun things. But um, I have a daughter now, and I sing to her, and I feel like I'm getting better at singing again because I sing to my daughter at night, and it's kind of a funny thing. But yeah, I wish I had kept up with it. That's for sure. You, you can always pick it up as a hobby, um, yeah. but but going back to quantum. Yeah. So how would you describe for the audience, what is quantum computing? Yeah, it's a hard question to answer, and this is definitely an oversimplification, but here's my best shot. Um, in a typical computer, you have uh, electronics, and at the fundamental level, you have these devices called transistors, and they process information as a zero or one. So basically everything you see that's produced by your computer is a product of zeros and ones, which in itself is kind of mind blowing. Now to take it a whole nother step further, in quantum computing, it utilizes two really amazing principles of quantum mechanics. Um, 
The first is that we have, instead of transistors, something called a qubit. And a qubit is able to be simultaneously a zero and a one, or some combination of zero and one. This is called superposition. And that is kind of confusing to even think about. Um, but as an example of how this becomes useful uh, is that in a classical computer, let's say you're searching for a specific number. Um, let's say I'm using binary, it's 0101. And you would have to search for that. So you'd have to say, okay, is it 0000, 0001, all the way to zero until you get to 0101. In a, in a uh, quant computer, you're actually able to utilize superposition to be in all of those states simultaneously. Um, so finding that number ends up being very fast. And uh, it also utilizes something called entanglement, which is where you have one qubit uh, and another qubit that are their states are connected. Um, the state of this qubit and changing the state of this, this qubit changes the state of the, the qubit over here. So it's what allows those four qubits in my example to be connected in the first place. And uh, that is something that is very difficult to explain, um, but it becomes very powerful for a lot of applications and allows us to solve very large problems in that are very difficult for a classical computer to solve uh, faster and get sort of this like exponential speed up. Very nice. Um, we, I could ask a million questions and I'm sure we will go down into a rabbit hole, <laughs> but um, can you control the entanglement? Can you create the entanglement and just because of your decision have two qubits that are entangled because you made something happen? Yeah, so there's a lot of different architectures for a quantum computer um, that do different types of entanglement. Um, so there's a million rabbit holes to go down in that direction. But typically, yes, you have a controlled set of qubits that are entangled with other qubits. And when you, um, it has to remain entangled throughout the entire ca calculation. And um, so there's a host of quantum algorithms that utilize uh, specific mappings of entangled qubits um and um yeah that's a, a growing area of research so because you can have because of superposition and the fact that you can have um uh all of the different types of uh information happen at the same time in the qubit uh, it's basically the, the amount of information that you can store, the amount of calculations that you can make basically gets multiplied like crazy, right? So if yeah. like the, the way I would put it with very non-technical words is you can store way more information, you have way more computational power. Yes, exactly. The computational power increases uh, exponentially. So uh, with the size of the problem. Um, so that is something that is is just really powerful. And you have to design quantum algorithms that utilize the architecture um, and the properties of quantum computing. That is challenging. And so it's a growing area of research. There's actually something called the Quantum Algorithm Zoo, where you can go and see the whole list of 
problems that can be solved using a quantum computer. Um, so yeah, there's just, there's the quantum computing field has many different areas of research. And right now, um, people are focused on the moonshot projects. Uh, so building a universal, scalable, large quantum computer that's able to solve these really big real world problems that classical computers can't solve right now. That is what the majority of people are really focused on. And that area has so many different segments of research that are going into trying to make that vision happen. Um, For example, um, uh, solving errors that pop up in a classical computer, because you can just use redundancy um, to find in like transistors for like leakage and that kind of thing, Uh, that errors, those kind of errors that pop up. But in quantum computer, you have to, uh, you can't use redundancy. You have to solve, if an error pops up in while something is entangled, you have to solve it mid-entanglement. You're like, whoa, how does that happen? So in a lot of cases, you have to have ancillary qubits where their whole job while the system is entangled is to identify and fix errors. Um, And turns out that with current computer uh, quantum computers, especially superconducting quantum computers, that is um, that doesn't scale very well as you increase the number of qubits because you have to have so many ancillary qubits per um, cluster of qubits. And um, so there are other types of quantum computing that people are developing um, that are more robust against errors. And there are ways that people are researching how to reduce noise and reduce environmental things that can tamper with entanglement because entanglement turns out to be very delicate. Okay. Um, some quantum computing methods can, uh, most quantum computing methods have to operate at very low temperatures and have to be in like con- controlled against magnetism and um, noise and vibrations, all sorts of things to try to preserve the entanglement. So though that's a really big area of research that's yeah, a hurdle conductors, right superconductors uh, solved some of that because of the material used to transmit energy or, um, or sorry it, did you say it solves some of that yeah no um kind of uh, solves solves what part of that the temperature and the energy required oh okay uh well yeah so for superconducting qubits we have to have them super cooled um so they use okay. like hydrogen cooling and that kind of thing um and yeah and that's in well in order for it to be superconducting superconductor you have to super cool it but right. having it at low temperatures also reduces some of the noise obviously as well um but yeah it turns out that uh, there's still a lot of noise and it's it's difficult to control um. So yeah, those are some of the hurdles that the field is facing. And then also the growing number of uh, quantum algorithms and trying to find problems that it can solve. And that is a really exciting area of research. Um, yeah. Good. What are some of the applications today for quantum computing? Yeah, what there's... being used for? Yeah, there, there are a lot of areas that it's being used for now. Um, so I guess I will kind of separate it into two camps. One, there's quantum computing, which is developing a computer to solve problems. And then there's also quantum information, 
So you can use entangled qubits and entangled particles and superposition and inherent randomness of particles to do some really interesting things in communication and cryptography. Um, that is very well developed today. Um, still growing area research and things to be done, but is very, very applicable now. People are building um, uh, secure quantum networks over fiber optics using quantum entanglement to detect if someone's listening into the fiber optic cable and for securing that communication. I'm using it in my company, Quantal Security. Uh, we're using quantum random number generation, which is using um, basically the fundamental randomness of atomic particles to generate completely random and unpredictable digital keys that we use in encryption for physical security. Uh, so that's how I'm using quantum information. But my research was in quantum computing when I was in grad school. And um, that is also, a, there are people are actually using it for real world applications now. Um, they're using it to study materials. Um, they're using it to solve optimization problems. And there are some companies that are actually utilizing this to solve their their problems. So in one industry, I know they're using it for um, optimizing the placement of windmills. And the thing that you have to bring into account is that maybe this industry is a little bit outdated with their algorithms. And yes, we are able to solve a quantum algorithm uh, use a quantum optimization problem and give them a better placement of their windmills. But are you able to get something just as good or better using the best of classical computing now with right. parallel computing and AI and all that? Um, I don't think there's been anything that's definitively proves that the quantum algorithms in the state that they are today, um, not the algorithms itself, but the, the, um, uh, fidelity and everything of our current quantum computers are not quite there yet to be used on a mass scale um, for solving huge problems um, because we have to overcome some of these like technical hurdles but we're using it and it's it's working so that is showing that we're moving in the right direction and it's it's uh growing very rapidly as a field. Very nice. And so you talked about some challenges, hardware, temperature, leakage, the amount of qubits you need to be kind of um, policing the system, right? To make sure there are no leakages and, and, and errors. Yeah. Um, are there any other challenges? And what happens when we, when we solve them, right? I mean, it's, it's like a three-way question. <clears throat> Did I forget any other yeah. challenges? How far do you think we are from solving those challenges and what happens once we solve those challenges? So the time estimation is really hard to calculate because there could be a breakthrough that sets off a chain reaction that gets us, you know, to market really fast. Um, <clears throat> uh, a lot of people kind of use like the five to 10 year range as being um, kind of a benchmark. Um, but yeah, there's... To kind of summarize the challenges, I already talked about error correction <clears throat> and scalability. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, interconnectivity is another one that people are starting to talk 
more about. Um, as you, we're always going to need classical computers. Quantum computers can't do everything. Um, so connecting quantum computers to classical computers for like hybrid computing is a really big area of research. And that's definitely a challenge for like um, <clears throat> maintaining uh, fidelity and everything like that. And also like different latencies and, and building an ecosystem basically of, you know, you have the cloud side and you have your um, uh, the classical computing side and the quantum computing side and building those architectures in a way that they can uh, fit together and be able to solve problems efficiently. Um, that's a really growing area of research. Um, <clears throat> cost is another thing. Um, you know, figuring out how to uh, manufacture effectively, which I don't think is as big of a concern, honestly. I think that's something we're going to figure out. Um, standardization. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's messy, really it is. There's just so many different philosophies behind how to build a quantum computer. Um, so you have superconducting qubits like IBM uses that. You can go on to IBM Quantum's website and you can play around with one of their quantum computers, uh, which is fun. <clears throat> and then there's uh, Microsoft, for example, taking a completely different route. They're going down this route of topological quantum computing. And um, it's funny because we don't even know if topological quantum computing is possible because the particles needed to do topological quantum computing, we don't know if they exist. So it's it's a really out there approach that I have a lot of respect for them actually for pursuing because we need to understand that. And the reason why they're going down that path is because the um, uh, chance for errors in a system like that are a lot lower. So uh, in, it would be ideal in a lot of ways if we were able to figure out how to make that work. Um, but it's one of the more out there approaches. And then there's adiabatic quantum computing, um, which is a different computational model. Um, and then there's architectures that fit more into that realm. You can see like D-Wave is taking a simplified version of that called quantum annealing. Um, so there's just so many different approaches that people are taking. D-Wave, for example, is going the way of hey, let's just like get a lot of qubits together and it's going to be really noisy and messy and let's just like try to solve problems on it and see what happens and then go from there and then try to clean everything up and improve the the noise and fidelity. And then um, IBM is taking a different approach where they're building like low and slow and getting, they, ha starting with, they started with a few qubits and then they're slowly building more and more qubits and they're trying to maintain that like universal quantum computing throughout. Um, so it's, it, there's so many different approaches, which I think is great. We need to be attacking it from all angles, but standardizing that is something that is a challenge. Um, and then, uh, like, uh, you can also talk about like quantum cybersecurity as being a hurdle. Um, but I mean, we're figuring that out. I think NIST is putting forth a post-quantum cartography, um, initiative to build cryptography that will be robust against um, quantum computers once we do have them be scalable and have the potential to break encryption. Um, so that's 
that those are some examples of some of the hurdles that we're facing in the field. Nice. Um, and I imagine when, when all of these get sold, it's like a um, zeitgeist moment of, wow, we just, you know, we just created something that is way more powerful than we ever imagined. Um, what, what role is the government playing in quantum computing? Oh, the government is definitely very uh, supportive and active. For quantum computing initiatives, they invest a lot of money into like national laboratories, for example, for investing um, in building quantum computers, building software and algorithms for quantum computers, all of the above. Also quantum communication and information like I was talking about. Um, there's definitely the feeling of urgency because, you know, China's per, uh pushing for this as well. We don't want China to have a quantum computer before us. I think cryptography is probably at the top of the government's mind on all of this because um, if we build a quantum computer, there's something called Shor's algorithm, which a lot of people are probably familiar with, uh, which uh, it would be able to factor large numbers very quickly. And that becomes very important for things like RSA encryption, a lot of, um, a lot of cryptography uses this principle because it's very hard for a computer to factor large numbers. But for a quantum computer, it'd be very, uh, it's more straightforward. So um, <clears throat> that's one area that they're really concerned about. And so they've ended up investing a lot of money into um, quantum computing research as a whole. Got it. How do you feel about the quantum computing community? Oh, I, I love the quantum computing community. I mean, with, with every research field, there's some hubris, there's some competitiveness and like, oh, we're right about this. No, you're because there's so many different approaches. You know, there's definitely arguments that happen in the field, but it's all good discourse for the most part. Um, and I have tremendous respect for many colleagues in the quantum computing field. And I find that overall, it's very collaborative and open um, and in terms of sharing research. And I love that about the field. Very nice. Erica, you're both a scientist, a researcher with a PhD, and then what I would call a passionate and down-to-earth entrepreneur. How did, how did this combination come about? I would definitely say that I lean more towards entrepreneurship than towards research. Um, just kind of, you know, that's where my mind and heart lead me. Um, but I'm also passionate about technology. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I can hunker down and do research. And I think that was something empowering for me to like prove to myself that I could do. And, um, I also love the collaboration of research. Uh, so I'm definitely more of like a collaborative person that also loves seeing the connections between things and building applications. I was able to have an amazing advisor, Travis Humble at Oak Ridge National Lab, who supported me in the direction I wanted to go with research and also encouraged my entrepreneurial efforts at the same time. I've definitely been very lucky in my career to have the people, the right people supporting me along my along my path but um so i did a very applications-based 
research path where I studied portfolio optimization for like investments with the D-Wave quantum computer. And I used that to study uh, a lot of the inner workings of uh, the quantum comp- the quantum annealer and understanding uh, limitations and where improvements needed to be made and that kind of thing. So um, that was, I loved that research and I loved collaborating with D-Wave as well. Um, and then while I was in that grad school program, I actually had the opportunity to take business classes. It was pretty unique in that they let me do that. Um, and I had the idea for my company and I took advantage of being a student and did business plan competitions, raised a little bit of capital. Um, that was all like non-dilutive, put that into writing patents. So I have two patents. Um, <clears throat> I kind of had to work two full-time jobs because it was very different than my research. And then um, I got a government grant, <clears throat> which was really transformative for me. I was also towards the end of my PhD. And with that, I was able to actually start doing real product development. And um, then I graduated at the end of 2020 and I went full time into my company because I had some of this grant that I could use. And then I um, did my first seed round in 2022. So it was, it's been a really wild ride and really exciting. And um, I definitely feel lucky to be here where I am. But at the same time, it was a lot of hard work that I went into it too. Right. So, so you have more experience actually as an entrepreneur than, than on the employee side, right? Or kind of. And on the employee side, okay. Yeah, I haven't, all of my jobs have either been research related or I've been working for myself. And it's such a weird thing to say. I actually wish that I had gotten a job when I was in high school, <laughs> just so I know what it's like to like fold burritos or something. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Like do a service job. I've never done a service job. I feel like I missed out in a way. But yeah, that is that's true. <laughs> you got you had a marketing internship. I remember you telling me about. Oh, okay. So yeah, my dad started a tech company when I was in um, high school. It was like 2011. It was just him and one other guy. He's making it work. <clears throat> and I was like, hey, yeah, let let me help you. I don't know what I can do as a high schooler just going into college, uh, but let me just like come in and do whatever you need. So I like helped with his website. I made like a marketing video. I actually ended up going with them to a trade show. I learned how his product worked and uh, did like some sales at a booth and everything. It was actually a really awesome experience and very exhausting, but um, that is what probably fueled my entrepreneurial spirit in a lot of ways because I was like wow I love this it's like you're building something from nothing with a small scrappy team and you're putting something cool into the world I wanted to do that so I actually had that mindset going into college and that's why I chose like areas of research that I felt like were on the cutting edge and that I saw like startups popping up with and then I was just really lucky to find a program that supported entrepreneurial efforts in grad school, a lot of times that that's, I think that's very rare to find. 
Um, so, yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's a very nice story. I love it. Um, what's your vision for your company? Where Where do you want your company to be in the next five years? Yeah, our in the next our goal is that by twenty twenty five we want to be the fastest growing security innovation company for physical security. Uh, and we're kind of on the bridge of physical security and cybersecurity because our mission is to bring access control into uh, into the future where you can have um, cloud-based monitoring, remote access, all these powerful integrations and features, but do it in a really secure way. Um, so we're kind of bringing the best of both worlds because there's companies doing the cloud-based access control stuff but it's they're neglecting security. It, it's it's definitely an area of Benny's improvement, and then it's also a really complex system. And we're finding a lot of really cool ways to automate a lot of it and make it um, just a better user experience that's right. also more secure. That's our vision: is to be the fastest growing security innovation company by twenty twenty five. How does it look for the user? What what's your you want to make it very friendly for the user? So, can you walk me through like I'm a user, I'm using your you know Quantel security. How does it look like? Yeah, so uh, we have a management portal um, that has kind of a dashboard you can imagine that has um, some interesting. We've done a lot of customer research basically to understand what kind of data they want to see up front um, because sometimes there's just like all of this scattered stuff all around it's really difficult to navigate and so um, we can show them things like well this is what your occupancy looked like throughout the week um, and they can kind of change a few things here and there with that um, and then we have a, a really good ledger system that allows them to see who's been in and when in a really easy to search for way right. um, <laughs> the data for that and other systems is very um, cumbersome. So this is it's a it's it's just a more user friendly method for that. But then also setting up users, we're using some interesting things with um, like AI to uh, to make that more automated and faster for them. Um, it's a very complicated. And they have to, a lot of times the facility will hire integrators to manage their access control system because it's so cumbersome. Right. So we're trying to make it really, really user-friendly, um, but also very secure. That's, that's just our our mission statement, basically. Very nice. You talked about AI. Um, what other technology excites you? Are you excited about what's going on with AI right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you know anything about AI right now, you've got to be excited, right? It's it's so it's amazing how fast it's moving. And I feel similarly about quantum computing is it's moving fast. Um, and that's that's one of the most exciting parts of it. I mean, I think it's really cool because now the general user is able to play around with AI more and more with things like Dolly 2 and um chat gt chat gpt and um yeah i follow ai pretty closely um and 
I mean, we have a long way to go to general intelligence. I mean, I don't think we're really anywhere close to that. But the applications today that we can use for AI is just so powerful. I mean, it's going to transform programming for sure. Uh, uh, You can automate a lot of programming now (laughs) um, for developers and um, creative stuff and um, detection stuff. Oh, my gosh. Like the capabilities they have now for detecting people, even indoors using Wi-Fi with AI is just like the kind of cybersecurity stuff, uh, like security stuff in general that with AI is also has a lot of implications. So it's a very, very interesting time to be alive. (laughs) Most definitely. How do you feel about general AI? Do do you get scared at it? Do 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 you remain optimistic at it? Um... Uh, it's it's an interesting question because it, it's hard to say. I mean, we definitely have to be careful, like, I think. I mean, I'm not the right person to be talking about this probably. But, um, I mean, I definitely think we, get, we have to be careful moving forward to make sure that we are responsible with the way that we develop general intelligence. But I do think, I mean, there's just so many examples of people, organizations freaking out over stuff that... I don't even think is a sign of general intelligence. Right. Um, <laughs> like, oh, I'll shut it down. And it's like, it's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that there's probably some, maybe some fear mongering a little bit. But at the same time, you we do have to be cautious. It, it's a fine line that I don't honestly don't know where that line is. Uh, and I don't think many people do. Uh, if anyone, so interesting. Enough topic for another for another episode. Yeah, somebody way smarter than me should talk about that. Oh yeah, you're you're smart enough, but that I'm sure. Um, <laughs> More knowledgeable at least. On that on that topic, do you do you ever put your brain to rest? And when you when you have free time, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I put my I have to put my brain to rest a lot. Um, so. Uh, I, something really important to me is working out. I have to work out. Um, I do that typically in the middle of the day, actually I'll around my lunch break time. I have it put in my schedule so that I make sure it happens. And, um, I like lift weights and do like hot yoga, that kind of thing. Um, I have a daughter and, um, a partner. So our, you know, my family is important to me and we spend time together um, I try to make sure that we do date nights, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, I also love playing video games. You know, I have to really like convince myself that I need to like sit down and do something for myself. Sometimes in the evening, I sometimes will get in the rut of working after we put my, our daughter to bed and, um, uh, I need to, I can't do that I, regularly at least. So sometimes I'll play for like an hour in the evening, a video game or hang out with, um, uh, Jamie, my, my partner. And, uh, yeah, I, I have to rest and I, I prioritize sleep as well. And I think something that helps me with all of that is time management. Uh, I really have to schedule personal and professional things into my schedule and make sure the most important things are put in first and are like repeating 
so that I schedule everything else around then. And if it doesn't fit, it goes to the next week. And that's just how it goes sometimes, you know. Um, but yeah, being an entrepreneur is an adventure that uh, can consume all of your time if you let it. Yeah. And it's important to take care of yourself so that you can show up for your team. You know, that's how I see it is that I don't provide enough value if I'm running myself down. So I love it. I agree 100% and I love it. <laughs> Erica, it's been so nice to have you here. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely stay in touch, maybe do another episode. Yeah, sometime. of course. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you choosing me to discuss this topic. I mean, you could have definitely chosen bigger people in the field. And I hope that this encourages people to go out and seek more information about quantum computing because I definitely talked about it on a really, I simplified a lot of things. And um, I'm sure, I know there are a lot of other people who come up with better analogies for explaining different concepts of quantum computing, all of the issues and promises that it offers. So um, yeah, I hope this is a launching point for people <laughs> to I, go out and I think more information. You, you can do a text I, with me and realize that now there are things that I have in my mind, like superposition, entanglement, quantum gates, and so on. And I learned all of that from you. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I could help. Thanks for having me.